Let's try this. Is that better? This morning, you should have gotten a little cord. Um, we're not going to tie them to your hair. This is, um, uh, we want you to pull them out, have them nearby. This is going to help us this week as a reminder to be focused on people other than ourselves. When I was a kid, one of, <laughs> one of the movies I saw on TV, and it was right scary. Uh, this was back in the 60s. And it was, a, it was a black and white movie where there was this severed hand that was crawling across the floor. And then <laughs> and now in a very cheesy way, but I mean, it came up and would strangle people, you know, this hand. Uh, things that are severed and acting on their own are generally the stuff of scary movies because things are supposed to be, you know, uh, connected to other things, particularly body parts, right? Well, one of the uh, really difficult areas to talk about in terms of our experience with ourselves is that sometimes our will, the want to in us, uh, cooperates with our hearts and we do the things that we want to do. We do the things that we plan to do. And then have you noticed there's other times when your will sort of severs and crawls away and strangles you (laughs) or gets you engaged in things that you never thought, why in the world did I ever do that? What's going on? Well, this business of the will is a uh, topic that has beguiled theologians and philosophers through the ages. When they've talked about how does the will work, how does it function, what is free will, is it really free, does God have free will? And the reason they ask these questions is because they're trying to understand how the will functions. In the context of God and discussing God, Uh, most uh, the question of saying, can God just do whatever he wants to do? And on one level, everybody says, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. He should be able to do whatever he wants to do. And yet on the other hand, since God is love and since God is good, how can he ever choose to do something that's not good or is not loving? So in a sense, his will is ordered to his character. So his will never would act against his character. He wouldn't be God. He could never, that's why the scripture says God cannot lie or God does no evil. Why? Because those would be things contrary to God's nature. So in a way, if God's will is oriented to God's nature, then his will isn't free. What does all that mean? Those are all the discussion in philosophy classes that uh, give people something to do and bore a lot of other people to death. But the point is it's a gnarly topic because it's kind of circular. How does this really work? But, but the issue here, and I think I want to address with you that I think is important to our subject this morning, is how do you think about your want to, the part of you that is the will? St. Augustine, the old dead guy from the 4th century, took the position that God created human beings with will because he intended, God intended that is, that we use our will in accord with the character of our hearts, that we use our will in accord with God's dream, that since we were made in the likeness and image of God, that when we would act, that we would say, I want to do the thing God wanted us to do, that we would represent him, that, that we would do good and that we would do right and that we would love things appropriately. And then if we decided to do something, it was because that was oriented to the good. We did it because good would come into it as a result of it. Well, what Augustine suggests is that the real worm that crawled its way into the human condition is the fact that the will found a way to act on its own. It crawled. And instead of being oriented to 
the heart oriented to the good, oriented to love, instead of being an instrument of that inner nature, it acted on its own. You know, kind of like a light switch. It, it's oriented to the good of someone turning it on or turning it off. You know, we, it, it's, it's a function. It's, a, it's an instrument that we use. Well, if a light switch went on and on, on and off on its own, that's the stuff of scary movies, right? What's going on? Something's amiss. Something's wrong. What Augustine claimed was that in the fall of humankind, the human will started functioning on its own. It started going crazy. It started willing for will's sake. And, and what he claimed was we caught that disease from or that notion from another being. If you remember from the Genesis narrative, there's this being there that we know as the Satan or as Lucifer. He's called as a snake in the, in, the, in the Genesis narrative. And this being, according to Christian tradition, according to tr- Christian catechism, Lucifer was once an archangel, a great archangel, who fell. And the reason that he fell was because he decided to pull away from making decisions based on representing God, making decisions based on honoring God, he chose to make decisions based on making decisions for himself. He used the will in a way that it was never designed to be used. Okay? And so in that, his will became, or the will became corrupted. We have an, uh, an example of this or the statement about this um, in Isaiah 14, where a number of people use this text to say this is about Lucifer. Before his, or as he's falling, kind of a recording of it. And Isaiah 14, 13 says, You said in your heart, referring to Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. In other words, he's going to do what he wasn't intended to do. He's going to do what he wants to do. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, what's happening here is I will got all jacked up. Okay? This whole notion of I want to do something and I will do this thing is not oriented to good, not oriented to love, not oriented to God, but I just want to do it, so I'm going to do it. That whole sort of separated will acting on its own is what Augustine said is when the will that was straight and could love appropriately, the will that was straight and that oriented itself to doing what was appropriate from the heart became bent and started only choosing to do things that would bring it back to itself. It's this curved love or attention about itself, this curve. He actually used the Latin phrase, the Latin word, incurvatus. And what that, I love that word because what it means is bent over on itself. And it's this bending over on itself so that when I love, I'm not really loving anything, I'm just loving myself. So if I say I love food as a glutton, I don't really love food. I love how food makes me feel. See? I'm actually self-loving. Now, this incurvatus, this bending, this, we could call it, it's like, like the wicker wood, you know, the wicker wood. It's called wicked wood. What is the word we get from wicked? Wicked. The reason you're wicked and I'm wicked is because my will is self-motivated and it's only trying to please myself. That's never, according to Augustine, how God chose the will to be used. And because of that, we've got these crazy things going on in us. We want to do what's right. We want to do what's appropriate. But every once in a while, we do what's not. And we freak ourselves out because we've got this 
thing in us. <laughs> Augustine gets this notion from Paul. Paul wrote, and you remember this, this is a text that probably most of us are the only one we're familiar with uh, or can relate to. We know, Paul says, that the law is spiritual, but I ain't spiritual. He said, I'm sold as a slave to sin. He said, I don't get it. I don't get what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. (laughs) Schizophrenia. Spiritual, spiritual schizophrenia, right? And, and, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good as it is. It's no longer I myself who do, but it's a sin thing living in me. Notice how he disconnects from this choice he's making. What he's saying is, I have a part of me that wants to do right, but there's a part of me that's disconnected that never, God never intended it to be disconnected. But the human will has been disconnected from the essence of our being. That's why we're in such trouble, is the will. The problem of sin is a problem of the human will according to Augustine, according to these thoughts. He said, I know that nothing good lives in me that's in my sinful nature, for I desire to do what is good. I can't seem to carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep undoing. Problem. See, Augustine claimed that the will was caught in this vicious cycle of self-love and that because it was caught up in that cycle, it was too strong to be broken, that we could never without the help of grace, ever right ourselves, ever decide to really make ourselves right, to get it together. And yet we still try, don't we? Right? Just can make myself do this. Well, we can't. When we do that, he's saying that our solo efforts are inefficacious. In other words, they will not accomplish what needs to be accomplished in our lives. That our fallen will cannot unscramble itself from this incurvatus. It can't unscramble that the only hope that we have is God acting in our lives. He said in the Confessions, uh, which is a great book uh, uh, that he wrote, that's actually a great seller now, it's a brilliant book. But he wrote, it's all a prayer. The whole book is a prayer that he makes to God and confesses his life. And in that book he wrote, quote, who can disentangle, he's talking about the will, who can disentangle this most twisted and most inextricable naughtiness? It is revolting. I hate to think of it. I hate to look at it. (laughs) Sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? He said, I got this thing in me that's wily and weird, and and I need help with this. Now, when he describes uh, how this works, he doesn't talk about horrible sin. Augustine says horrible sin, it's not the kind of sin. That's why sin's all the same. The kind of sin that you do is irrelevant. I mean, it might be more destructive and more hurtful, but all sin is sin. That's why if you're just a little prideful, I mean, you, you might have a little better sin than somebody that's doing something really, really like, you know, drug abuse or something, but, you know, it might be a holier sin. You might just feel better than they are because you are better than they are. It's still sin. And so when, when, when Augustine describes sin, listen to what he describes. I mean, he did some horrible things, but this is what he describes that he thinks is just unbelievably disgusting. He said, He talks about when he was a teenager and that he and his buds went and stole these peaches from this farmer. And he said, but did we steal it? Did we choose to steal it for some good because we were hungry? No. Did we steal the peaches for some good that we would bring it to the poor so they could be fed? No. He said, why did we steal the peaches? He said, we stole them because we could. And he says, we just destroyed them. They just threw them on the ground, threw them. You know, they just destroyed the peaches. And he said, that's... The evil heart, the fact that it just wants to do what it wants to do, what it wants to do it. 
How many of you know that's in you? You naughty you. It reminds me of this kid in our church in Wisconsin who had, um, we had, you know, the alarms, obviously, in the public building. We had these alarms. And for about three weeks, the police and the uh, fire department vehicles were showing up at our services because the alarm kept going off. So every service, you know, the alarm's going off and we're trying to figure out what's going on. And we finally put spies out there to watch. And sure enough, on that fourth service, this little five-year-old kid snuck up to the thing, trying to pull that thing. Little, you know, see, he wasn't doing that to try to bring help to the community. He wasn't doing that because he was thinking, you know, I want to protect the people. His will wasn't ordered to the good. He was an evil little being. Why was he so wicked? Because he just wanted to do it because he could do it. See, that's the essence of wickedness. Is your will as a freak? Freak! So, <laughs> so is it hot in here? So, yeah, it is hot. Yeah, redemption, I, nothing I can do about it. But redemption, <laughs> redemption in, in this context is about unscrambling, scrambling or unwicking the will. And it's, 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 getting to a place where your choices can be ordered to the nature of God, which is love, which is goodness, and, and you start living a life beyond yourself. It's this notion of, of, that's why when we talk about someone coming to Christ and entering into a place where salvation is beginning to be worked out in a person's life, which I think is more process than a moment. And I think, I think it starts in a moment, but I think that idea of, of opening your heart to Christ, remember what it says, to start the process you must confess Jesus as Lord. Why is that so critical? Because lordship's an issue of the will. Issue of the will. When I say you're in charge, what does that mean? I'm not. So when you're coming to, if you want to experience salvation, you've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with your want to's and what you don't want to do, and what you basically are saying, I'm laying that on the line. And what that actually ends up looking like is it looks like you're living beyond yourself, which implies, oh, watch this. This is what Jesus said at the heart of this. To be a disciple is Matthew 16. He said, he said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself and what? Take up his cross. Don't you just love these texts? I bet you quote these every day just as a confession. Must, <laughs> these are the tough verses. In, in other words, these are verses, they're the language of death. They deal directly with this idea of a death to selfishness. That the locus of the self-will kind of pleasing itself is not the focus of a Christian or the location of our energies as a Christian. And somehow changing that is huge. St. Francis of Assisi said, quote, above all the grace and all the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved, the greatest one above all of them, is the overcoming of self. When we overcome self, what ends up happening is we start facing others. Now, there's two kind of others I want to talk to you about before I shut up. The two others are, first, God, and the second are other others. Everybody say God and other others. (laughs) First, God. Understand, God is an other. I read this poster years ago. It said, two immutable laws of the universe. There is a God, number one. Number two, you are not him. 
God is not you. God is other than you. And somehow we are called to give our lives, if you're going to deal with the will, this broken, incurvatus will, you're, we're supposed to come and surrender our lives to God, to love Him, even though we don't see Him, which is a gnarly enterprise to be sure. But we're to love the one we don't see. And not only that, we know some things about Him. We know, for instance, that He is good. We know that He is love. He forgives us. There's all kinds of things we can pick up on. We, we know his essence. We know that he's beautiful, that, that he's the responsible for all things that are beautiful and, and good and that sort of thing. We get that, but there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know about God. In fact, I, I, I think, that, you know, I, we have this dog named Frank, and, uh, you know, we don't get along famously, but we get along. And, uh, you know, Frank and I have communication. I can say things, kennel, he knows what I mean. I can say, go bye-bye, he, he under, totally knows that. Treat, he gets that, right? He knows a few of the things that are going on, but there's a whole bunch of stuff he doesn't get. I don't, you know, I don't talk to Frank. I don't tell him what I'm feeling, right? Because he doesn't get it. I mean, some of you may do that. You need to see a counselor. But, but there's, see, I know that Frank and I connect, but there is an infinitude between Frank and I. He knows. I don't know how he knows we leave Sunday morning. He knows we leave Sunday morning. I can tell he knows. So there's some things he knows, certain days. I don't know how he even gets that. Like the pattern we do, I don't know what he does. But he gets it. But it isn't like he totally gets it. He doesn't say, have a wonderful time with Frank again. <laughs> right? He doesn't know what's going on because he's Frank. He's a dog. So there's this infinitude between Frank and I. Because, and think of this, if there's an infinitude between created Ed and created Frank, How much distance is there between created Ed and uncreated? God. On some level, you've got to understand, you can't get... It isn't that God's trying to be mean to you. There's this whole part of theology, a whole type of theology called apophatic theology. And what it deals with is all the stuff we just don't understand about God. The fact that He's not being like we are being. He's non-being. That He's Trinity. What does that even mean? How can he be three and not be, but be one? There's just a bunch of stuff we don't get about God. It's just, there's a bunch of, of um, mystery that's in that. And, and we shouldn't freak out that we don't know that much about him. I think if God really tried to talk to us, we wouldn't get it anyway. It'd be like you trying to explain the stock market to a two-year-old or to me. <laughs> right? There's a scripture in Romans 11. This actually was a, a text that was sung probably as early as five to ten years after the resurrection. These are very early texts. And this one, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments as apophatic talk. In other words, unknowing. His paths are beyond tracing out. You can't trace his path. There's not a big enough piece of tracing paper to trace God. You can't get your mind around God. You can't. It's impossible. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's become his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? From him, through him, to him are all things. It all starts in him and all ends in him. So you can't try to get your mind around him. You can just throw your mind into him. So this kind of notion that we're dealing with this other called God, but we're called to deal with him even though we don't get him. We're called to surrender to him even though we don't understand him. And we're to love him 
with all of our hearts and all of our mind and all of our strength, this being we can't even see. It's crazy. This thing called faith is crazy. It's whacked. Beautiful. We're called to pursue him. (laughs) We're called to glorify him, which means we make him famous. We're called to do everything we do in the name of Jesus. We're to do, we're to eat in his name. We're to clean in his name. We're to go to work and do it as if we're doing it unto the Lord. We're to, we're, we're to be together in the name of Jesus. In other words, the notion is that he's engaged with us. He promised to be with us and we're simply acknowledging him. If I went over to your house and I stood and, you know, or, I, or after a service and we were hanging around here and you were standing with two or three people and I walked up and nobody talked to me, you know what I would think? You rude people. He's being rude. If I came over to your house and hung out, you wouldn't even talk to me? It just means you're... I think unspirituality is not anything other than rude. We're just refusing to acknowledge that God is there. And God's saying, I'm here. Seek me. Acknowledge me. Be aware of me. Be othered-oriented. Right? And I think that what the idea here is that we're to like sacrifice our lives to Him. That's what Paul uses, sacrifice language. I did this because I think an egg of the egg that sacrificed its life for me this week. You know, you crack it and pour it open. You crack it and pour it open. Paul uses that kind of language of pouring out. He says in, in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices where you are holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's that notion of being laid out, opening yourself before him in everything that you do. It's that, it's, that's what the word Eucharist means. It's the idea of, of, the, of the body and the blood is being broken and poured out. We're to be a Eucharist to the world. The body of Christ is to be the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the Eucharist. We're to be the body of Christ in the world. We're to be broken out and poured out. Think of the image, pouring out, giving yourself, not for yourself, you incurvatus thing, but giving yourself to the other, that notion. We're to do it to God and we're to do it to others. Now, that's where it gets really hard because the more I get to know some people, the better I do like my dog. We're talking about others. God hasn't called us this to pour out ourselves for God, but we're literally to break open our hearts for others and to give ourselves, not just the good, but to give even to God. It's not just we bring our perfect little lives and say, oh, praise you, Lord. I think we're supposed to bring our junk. I had some junk this week. I had stuff to do. I didn't have enough time to do it. And then my wonderful grandchildren all came over at the same time and spent three days. <laughs> Which means I had to be sequestered in my room and, you know, locked up in there so I could get some stuff done. And then they come into there. They have no sense of boundaries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Little children. And then, you know, they're all like under four, three. They're little. And, 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 they, and, and they're so cute and you've got to pay attention to them. And then, and then on top of that, they're little petri dishes. They carry germs. And they're all snuffling and coughing and stuff and passing it on to each other. And then they give it to me and leave. And then I have it for weeks because they've got little bodies that get over it like that. And then I've got to suffer and pray and eat vitamins. It was not a good week. Woke up this morning, my head was hurting, got up, a little snuffly. <laughs> Don't listen to that woman. <laughs> and then to top it off, I looked at my iPad and it's broken. They broke it right there and it cracked up in there. <laughs> I, was, 
I mean, I was fit to be tied. I, so what did I do? I said, Lord, I want to I crack my children. <laughs> I want to crack somebody, but I give myself to you. See, what's cool is that even if you give God your garbage and your stupid and your, and your selfishness, if you give him even the worst about you, he comes and peace comes and strength comes. He's really there, but, but it, it doesn't work unless you get past yourself. You can't just try to have faith so you have a perfect life because you're never going to have a perfect life. You're in the land of the suck, and occasionally it will suck. Sometimes it's massive suck. Sometimes it's double dog suck. Sometimes it's kind of suck or not too suck. But it always sucks. But what God's after is somehow that we give ourselves to him and be aware of the other than ourselves. We get past ourselves, not only to him, but also to other others. And I need to shut up. But I'm going to tell you about a couple of other others. The first other other I want to tell you about is the person that's less than you. The other that's less. This is out of Romans 12. It says, bless people who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with people who rejoice. Cry with people that are crying. In other words, connect with people. Live in harmony with one another. You don't have to be the same, but you've got to learn to harmonize, not be dissonant. And then he says, don't be proud. This is a problem for us. We're proud. Because we need to be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. What's he talking about, low position? He's talking about the people. You know, we, we, we tend to want to pick people to hang with like we pick cars. We try to find, at least for me, I like to drive a car that makes me look better than I am. You know, somehow, you know, you just try to pick clothes or something. And we tend to try to pick people that make us look better. We want to come next to them because when we're next hitch up to their wagon, somehow we garner some of the whatever they have. Strength, uh, uh, beauty, uh, talent, leadership. Wealth, I mean, whatever, whatever it is. That, that if they look better than us, it, it, the, the tendency is to want to hook up, hitch up to their wagon. And sometimes when we talk about a community like this, sometimes when people tell me, I've, I just can't connect. I just can't find anybody to connect with. I don't feel like I'm really connected to this community. A lot of times my suspicion is, and I don't usually tell them this, but my suspicion is, you conceited, proud person, you. <laughs> I don't really think that. I'm thinking it now and saying it to you so you feel awkward. But, but why am I saying that? Because a lot of times, you know, who we really want to connect with are people we've seen across over. They go, I want to connect with her. I want to connect with him. Or I want to connect with that person. They're a leader. I want to connect with that person. And if we don't get to connect with the friends we want to connect with, we feel like we've been slighted and we feel like we can't connect. The reality is, if we would just lift up our heads and look around and realize everyone in this room is an extra, a person that is seen by God as worth Jesus Christ. That's why he paid Jesus for us to be in this room that we would actually celebrate and enjoy each other, you'll find out that a lot of people are cooler than you think they are. That everybody's got a story that has just texture and richness to it. And that if you would just learn to celebrate people and move, to, Jesus always moved toward people that got him in trouble for moving toward. He would hang with people that didn't make him look better, made him look worse, and yet he still moved toward him. I think that one of the great calls of us as believers is that we should break ourselves open for people that seem less than us. Move toward the less, and you'll have more friends than you know what to do with. And then the second group are the people I call the EGR people. 
These are the extra grace required people. These are the people that basically, they're the chalkboard people. You know what I'm talking about? Or, the, or they're the balloon rubbers. <laughs> the balloon rubbing people. Sorry, Janice. <laughs> what do you call that? Wait, 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 wait. You know what I'm talking about. How many go crazy with that? Right? Is anybody that kind of, you know, their hair kind of goes up and they There are people like that. That when you get around them or try to move toward them, they make you a little... I had my brother Steve was like that. He was a... <laughs> he was a... Chalkboard balloon guy, right? And drove me crazy. As a kid, I was only 13 or 14 years old. I kind of hated him as much as a 12 or 13-year-old could hate, but it felt real. And, and he ended up getting in trouble his last two years of school and, and actually went to a reform school thing. I forget what they call boys' school. And when he left, I'm not kidding, as horrible as it is, I actually I felt life was better. Things seemed nicer. Pressure was down in the house. I got more attention. I got more food. Life was getting better with Steve out of it, right? So then I go to college, and my first job in a restaurant, guess who got a job there too? Steve, right? Then I got college, my two favorite classes. Guess who's in both of those classes? Steve, driving me crazy. Then I got an apartment with two other guys. I one of the guys that happened to sign the lease, Steve. But here's what was weird is that it was not really Steve at all. There were, it wasn't Steve at all. They were just peop- there were people like Steve. There are other Steves in the world. They were all over the world. And they were tormenting me. And I realized until I learned to love my brother Steve and forgive him and somehow let him go, I would not... That was the only time I stopped being tormented by the Steves in my world. See, some of you in this room have Steves in your life. And you go from job to job, relationship to relationship, city to city, and everywhere you go, you're there for six months or so, and these people arise. You can't figure out why they're all over. You know why? Because God's tormenting you. You know why? Because God wants you to learn how to get along with those people and to love them. Why? Because there's something that happens in you when you give yourself and move toward people who make you crazy. And these are the EGRs. This is Karl Barth. He's a brilliant Swiss theologian. He's dead. He said... um, well, he is. Um, quote, <laughs> not all brilliant people that are Swiss are dead. Anyway, um, <laughs> quote, <laughs> what? <laughs> the strange, the different, the unintelligible. He's actually talking about aspects of people. You ever run into the things that are strange about people? Things that are unintelligible about people? Things that are different, right? Things, he says, the subjective aspect of my neighbor. He says the strange, different, unintelligible, subjective aspects of my neighbor. This, that actual aspect, those actual things, it's the garment in in which the one thing meets me. He's saying whenever I run into somebody who's strange or different, it, it, it makes me meet something in me. What he's talking about is grace. He says, we discover respect for one another, 
not on this ground because we're both Republicans or both Democrats or because we both came from this, went to the same college or same high school. We, we don't find respect because of on this ground or that, but counter to every ground. We find respect because we are bidden to look at the one thing, which is grace. He says, the claim my neighbor makes on me, when there's a claim on my patience, when there's a claim on my attention, when there's a claim on my consideration, when there's a claim on my loving them, it's the claim of the one thing, grace. See, whenever you mess with me and I have to be patient or I have to consider you or I have to love you, what's happening is I'm encountering grace. I'm encountering grace precisely because you are a pain in the blessed assurance. Why am I telling you this? This is my last verse. This is Isaiah 58. The reason we're talking about this in Lent is because when we're fasting in Lent and when you're in the 50s, going down there is a lot more work. It's not that funny. Um, When we're doing this thing in Lent, we're fasting. We're not just trying to cause pain for ourselves to cause pain for ourselves. We're fasting because we're trying to orient ourselves to the fact that we're broken, that we have needs. We're trying to look for those things in us that that, that react negatively to us so we can repent with those things. But it's to be more than that. We're actually trying to push ourselves to be aware of the other. We're trying to push ourselves to be aware of God, the other, and other others. And the reason we have this rope is in a minute I'm going to have you tie this onto each other because you can't do it by yourself unless you've got a great tongue or something. <laughs> I better quit. I just, I'm not telling you half of what I'm thinking. It's really funny inside my head. I'm having a blast at your expense apparently. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> what we're trying to do is, is make ourselves aware of the other and the thing about the other. And this is the text. This is Isaiah 58. Fasting like yours today will never make your voice heard on high. Is that the sort of fast that pleases me? A day when a person inflicts pain on himself, hanging your head like a reed, spreading out sackcloth and ashes. Is this what you call fasting? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the sort of fasting that pleases me? And I watch, he makes a shift. He's saying it's not just about tormenting yourself, it's about being aware, watch, of the other, watch. Is this not the sort of fast that breaks on justice, that, 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 that undoes these yokes, that causes the oppressed to go free? Is, isn't it the kind that you're sharing food with another, sheltering the homeless poor, seeing someone lacking in clothes, clothing him? Not, not turning away from your own kin. Then, he says, when you're aware of others, light will blaze out like the dawn and your wound will quickly be healed over. What is he saying? He's saying when, when we think about Easter, when we think about celebrating this moment, and that's the greatest holiday in the Christian calendar is Easter for us. When we think about the resurrection, we've got to remember that the resurrection was preceded by a Gethsemane of death. And somehow when we come and we're willing to be broken open for others and we give ourselves to others and we think about God as another and others as others and we just move toward people that are less than us, move toward people that require grace, that's when we start seeing the resurrection power of God show up in our lives most grandly. We're in this Lenten season precisely to help us become 
aware of others, to check our incurvatus will, to let it be broken before him, to break ourselves open for him, and to be aware that we're in this world called to be other-oriented. God bless you. Tie this around your neighbor's hand. Get some help. Tie it around there. I have one on that I put on this week and uh, for practice, and it bothered me for about three days. It was so irritating, and I thought, how appropriate because you're thinking about others, right? And sometimes they can be irritating. So do that. And then this week when you're out in your jobs or this week when you're out in your life, start trying to be aware of others, moving toward people, opening your heart to them, being more aware of God. And let's practice this this week in anticipation of Easter. Thanks. Amen. Good stuff. Did you, uh, did you get messed with a little bit this morning? stretches us. It stretches us out of ourselves towards others. We're going to continue this journey this Wednesday night as we um, talk about moving towards the Steves in our life. Um, all of us have a person or two or three or half a dozen we can put in there, right? Those that, that need that extra grace. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning? Let's just raise our voices as we, as we close to get together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As you go to today, I just want to remind you of the blessings of God that are in His heart for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. As we move into this grace, as we step into this grace, as it begins to soak into you a little deeper, may that grace go outward um, to all the others that you encounter. And may his face turn towards you in a very personal way and give you peace. When you know that he's looking your direction, that he recognizes and is very aware of you and your individual life, there's no peace like that on the planet that when you settle into that. So go in peace today. If you're in need of prayer for anything, our prayer team will be here as always. I encourage you to come and, and allow those to pray for you. Go and have a great week. Bless you as you go.